Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Square One. A podcast where we take our guests back to square one, where they first started their business, so that you can learn from their successes and failures. Brought to you by Isaiah and Malcolm with Omni Home Services. Quick disclaimer for today's episode, we will be discussing some subjects which might be a little bit difficult for some of our listeners, including addiction and recovery. To clarify, Will has been in recovery for the past 10 years. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Today we have Will Jones, owner of Tom's Carpet and Flooring Outlet. Will purchased, I think, Tom's Carpet two years ago. We're going to dive right into that about the pros and cons of purchasing a successful business. Also, something cool, personal Will, like without any training, has completed a full Ironman. He's ran a hundred mile crazy race. Dude, tell us about your physical journey first. Yeah. Uh, first off, thank you guys for inviting me. Pretty excited. First podcast ever done. So, um, physically, I ran cross country in middle school and then that was it. I had a major surgery and ended up kind of going away from that. But, um, my buddy was competing in the Ironman in 2016 and I went to support him. And on the way there, people were like, would you ever do this? I was like, absolutely not. Yeah. I was like, that sounds like a terrible idea. And then I got there and I'm watching these people been out there. I found out for like 12, 13, 14 hours. And I was like, just kind of humbled really. I was like, man, these people got something I don't, which is like the drive to push on when all odds are against me. And I was like, man, I maybe I do want to do something like this. So then you just like signed up? <sighs> Two weeks later, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it next year. I didn't own a bike. I never ran over two miles. Grew up swimming in the pool and in the lake or whatever, but that was about it. And so next thing you know, I'm signed up and I'm going to do it the following year. And people started, you know you're not going to do this. There's no way. And that fuels me. Like I love people rooting against me because I, I've always felt like I was kind of a little guy and had something to prove. So what was your time in the Ironman? I completed it in 12 hours and 32 minutes. You're obviously a natural born athlete, if that's the case. Um, what about this hundred mile run in Colorado? Yeah, so that was kind of an accident. An accident, a hundred miles on accident. <laughs> yeah, so like <laughs> it's after, bullshit. Cancel this guy after after the Ironman. I got excited. Like I didn't want to really do any more Ironman. I just wasn't into the triathlon thing. So I started running and did my first trail run called the Stump Jump 50k here in Chattanooga. And honestly, I felt like that was harder than the Ironman. It only took like seven hours, but still, I was just like, I wasn't trained enough. And mentally, I just fell apart and, and kind of fell in love with this mental breakdown journey that happens on these trail runs. And so the 100 miler, I had like, I had done 100K, which is roughly 62 miles. And I thought, okay, that's enough. Like, I'll never, I'll never do more than that. I'm good. And one of my buddies was like, hey, man, we could sign up to get in this ultra 100 miler that it's really hard to get in, but we can sign up as a team. And then if one of us gets picked, we all get to go. And I'm like, "Okay, that'll never happen. Yeah, sure. Whatever. That was in, I think, February of 21. 
And my son, my second son was due in May of that year. And the race was in August. And I'm like, yeah, that'll never happen. Well, lo and behold, we got drawn and got into the race. And next thing you know, I'm on my way to Colorado to do 100 miles in August at Leadville, which is above 10,000 feet elevation. And I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> That's impossible to train that much when a baby's on the way, in my opinion. But like when you're on mile 85, dude, like what are you eating? Are you shitting yourself? Yeah. Like, so it was actually mile 65 uh, where the breakdown hit for me. So I mentioned that like kind of what I fell in love with with trail running is there comes a time like, you know, it's all relative. Like the more you train, the more you get better at running longer and longer and your mind just kind of goes places. But the mental breakdown starts to happen. And there is a time in every race where you're like, I just want to quit. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I describe it as a spiritual journey that I go on because I really start having this like meditative thoughts with myself and God, if you want, whatever you, you, you know, believe in. And I really kind of start appreciating what I have in my life, you know, and like really what's important to me. And then like, I break it down all the way to like, just thank you for allowing me to even be able to use my legs because I know people who would, you know, give anything to be able to just walk, Sure, you know? And so like, I'm sitting here crying, being a little baby. I'm like, man, you know, it ain't that bad. It just ain't that bad. So I get through mile 62 and then I get to 65 and then I'm at like 66, which was at that point, the furthest I'd ever ran is at like hour 18 or some shit. And it's starting to get dark. It's cold. And you still have like 35 miles left. <laughs> yeah. But at that point, you're not thinking, okay, mile one, I got 99 to go. You know, like that's not how you break down a hundred mile race. You race like point to point, you know, okay, I got to get to this checkpoint, I got to get to this checkpoint. In between those, I need to eat, I need to fuel. Um, but it came at mile, like I said, like 66 or so, and I was just ready to give up. I was tired. I'd been up since 3 a.m., the, you know, almost 24 hours at this point. And I was just like, man, you know, most people can't run this far and you've gone further than you've ever went. And so, like, after a certain distance, they allow you to have a pacer. So, one of your buddies, if you're fortunate enough, come out there. And and so, one of my buddies is with me. He's like, dude, what's wrong? You're, like, really quiet, which for me is a rare thing. And so, I was like, dude, I just want to quit, you know? And, like, that's the hardest part is just admitting it. Like, you can say, eh, nothing, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And finally, I was like, dude, I just want to give up. I just, I'm ready to quit. And he reminded me, you got to enjoy the highs and endure the lows. And when he said that word endure, I was like, I have never understood that word more than in that moment. And then we cried it out. I hugged him and I was like, <laughs> dude, you you just saved my race. Like, you're going to get me through this thing. And and then it, from there on, it was just it was painful and I was tired and whatever. But like after that moment, I didn't think again about quitting. So your buddy pulled you through. What's his name? Shay McCormick. Shout out. To Shout my, out. My boy Shay. Yep. So All right. Sorry, I got to comment on this real quick. So Sam, who is Will's dad for context, I used to work for him at bank that was then known as Bancorp South, now Cadence Bank. But anyways, Sam told me this story. And for some reason, always like 
one or two lines from that have stuck with me. He described when you start at the race, it being like morning time, right? And the sun was coming up. Yeah. And when you finish the race, the sun was coming up again (laughs) for the next morning. And I always thought, I was like, man, if I ever meet this guy, I'm going to have to ask him about how surreal it was to see that. It was amazing. You saw the sunrise twice in one race. In one race. And the longest I had sat down was maybe for like five minutes every so often. But yeah, so there's this huge lake about, I don't know, five or 10 miles in that you run by for, I mean, it's huge, like probably 10 miles one way you're running past it. So the sun came up day one and I was, I didn't see the first half of the lake. It was dark. So once it came up, I saw the second half. Well, then on the way back, I got to see the other half because the sun was coming up and I was like, oh, that's now that's what that side of the lake looks like, you know? And so at that point, my second, no, my third pacer was with me. I got a lot of good friends. So um, second pacer was Chris Boone, my other buddy. Shout out. And then Jason Souls. Shout out. My last pacer that brought me in the last 10 miles. Like, you know, we've had a lot of journeys together, training and everything. And I can just remember this long dirt road that's probably, I don't know, as far as you can see, sun's coming up. It's cold. It's probably 30 degrees. We got jackets on and gloves and the sun's just coming up and I'm just like bawling my eyes out because like, I didn't believe it was possible. I didn't think I could do it. And here I am. And yet again, like God has blessed me with this and I'm doing it again and again. And I just like turn the credit over because I know that like I wanted to quit. You know what I mean? Like if I rely on me, I give up every time, but I somehow can kind of reach in and find that power and, and it come through my buddies, you know, or whoever. And like, dude, it was just an amazing, amazing moment. I love that, dude. I I think it's uh, beautiful and disgusting at the same time. (laughs) Uh, So let's jump into business. Uh, Will, tell us, you're the first person on our podcast that didn't start a business. You actually purchased a successful business. Tell us about the pros and cons real quick to that. The cons, I think, are probably... I would like to talk about first. I don't know why, but it's just, you know, everybody knew Tom. Tom is a great man. Tom Pucanis, his name. Shout out. Learned a lot from him and give all the credit to him. So everybody knew the way Tom did things. And so that's like been one of the cons is like, I'm not Tom, right? You know, like I still do things like he did, but it's a new generation and I'm, I see how business is going and it's like time to make some changes. So not everybody enjoyed that, you know? So some of the older customers we've had, they're like, oh, well, Tom would do this or Tom would do that. It's like, well, Tom's not here anymore and this is how we're doing them now. And, you know, and still trying to like say, hey, we appreciate your business and everything, but like things are changing. So let me elaborate on that. Have you, uh, and I love the idea of purchasing a successful business or even, you know, a somewhat successful business and trying to turn that around. Have you seen anybody like leave or not support Tom's carpet and flooring because Tom's not there or upset that he's not involved? I don't know for sure if I've had people leave, but I definitely know there's some customers that I don't really service anymore. And I don't necessarily know that it was because um, Tom, I think it was more because we really did a lot of like 
lower income stuff and i've been trying to kind of change that okay just because i like to work a little smarter and a little less hard i mean i like to work hard don't get me wrong but like there's some people that want something for nothing and i believe that we go to work every day to make a living and i still give them a fair price but on some of those low 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 ends they just want cheap shit for nothing yeah i think we all get that yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so outside of those people could you put a percentage just for our listeners to understand if you do purchase a business especially has somebody's name in it that's the big thing is you don't want to rebrand palms carpet and flooring to wills carpet and flooring because you lose your followers but is there a certain percentage of people that you five ten percent whatever of recurring business that we could probably expect to lose once purchasing that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I've definitely, I would say five at the most is what I've experienced. And that's because I didn't change a whole lot. You know what I mean? Like it's still... That's outstanding number, yeah. Yeah, we just kept it very similar. We've just been kind of updating. I mean, we were old school. We didn't have computers. We did everything pen and paper. So tell us, the pros obviously that you're out there already you don't have to build any like tell us about a pro that you probably see now that you didn't see when you were purchasing tom's carpet i mean like the biggest pro is day one you walk into business you know i can remember leaving the signing table uh we signed and i walked you know the guys are already working and our first day we did sixty thousand dollars of business come on jeez yeah you can't do that I mean, you'd be lucky to do that in your first month starting a brand new business. First year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was just nice to do that, you know, and just have the name. And like, I can't say enough that like Tom is the reason Tom's carpet is what it is. And people love us because of that man and how honest he was and how well he took care of people. And he trained me. I mean, I that's the only job I've ever had in my life. So, like, I don't know how to work any other way except for what he showed me. Okay, so you've had prior experience with Tom's Carpet before you bought it. Tell us a little bit about what that looked like and when you started that. Yeah, so 2007, my dad decided I needed to go get a job and stop being a lazy bum and living off him. And uh, so I've known Tom and his family my whole life. We went to school, me and his youngest daughter grew up together, and then his oldest daughter and my sister grew up together. So, like, we've known them. They've been, I think my dad and and Sue, Tom's wife, worked together. And so, he always told my dad, hey, if you want him to go to work, send him this way. So, anyways, I showed up, yep, 2007, 17 years old, grabbing a broom and sweeping and toting rugs and... Uh, just doing whatever I was asked to do because I figured I'm, his name's on the bill. I'm here to go to work. So then fast forward a little bit, started doing a little bit more, making rugs. Didn't really get into sales a whole lot until later on. Just kind of going to work because dad wanted me to go to work. Didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do in my life or didn't even think twice about owning it one day. Gotcha. Do you think that that was really influential in your decision to go to purchase the business because not everyone that looks into purchasing either like a small business, local business, franchise has had experience with the company prior to you. So with you personally, how did that weigh in on that decision? Yeah. So by the point where it got to where we were actually talking about buying it, I mean, I knew the ins and outs. Um, Like I said, we 
didn't have computers. So like I had to know how to do everything. And that's kind of how the old model was. Like everybody there did everything. So I was pretty familiar with everything day to day, minus paying bills and stuff like that. But, and then too, like at that point in my life, it was like, I don't know how to do anything else. I didn't go to college. I went to Chattanooga State for a couple semesters. That didn't work out. And like, I didn't really have a backup plan. I met some people in the trucking business. They were like, hey, you can make a ton of money doing this. So I tried that for six months. I went and tried to sell commercial vehicles. And that turned out to be, in the moment, a complete disaster. I left there on great terms with Tom, but my coworkers that I was working with at Tom's, I did not really get along with too well and was super grateful to be leaving and thought I had figured it out and found the next thing that was going to get me through life. And then three months into that adventure, I was like, fuck, I need to go back. You know, like (laughs) this is not what I thought it was going to be. So I stuck it out another three months and then called Tom one day at, well, I talked with my dad and I kind of made a decision. I was like, Hey, I think my best option to get to where I want to be in life is trying to buy Tom's out because I know what to do. I can make good money. I know it's going to be a lot harder than if I, you know, could go somewhere else and do that. But I had kind of made up my mind. So like I said, I thought it was, um, in the moment, a disaster going there, but it was a pivotal moment in my life. I needed that experience because I didn't know anything else. I was scared to leave because of the comfort, but I also had no other experience. I didn't know what it was like to be in a corporate world. I didn't know what it was like to not be able to just text your boss. Um, so I got there and was just like, this is bullshit. Like these people are fake. I don't agree with the way they were wanting to do business. Like they're trying to get me to sell vehicles to people that have saved their life savings and I'm going to set them up for failure. Like I got to sleep at night. I want to help people. I want to make a living, but not at people's expense. I think that says a lot of things about Tom Pukinus. And uh, so shout out to him again and shout out to your dad, honestly, for obviously installing a work ethic in you. So good for you. Good for your dad. So we're going to just skip around on the questions here. And can you teach us a strategy or tactic that can immediately provide an ROI to somebody? And let's just say somebody that's not in your specific industry is carpet and flooring, but selling like stuff, a product. You earlier said the best tactic was buying a well-named business, but not everybody has the ability or the 15 years experience with the relationship of building it with Tom. So let's say you're just selling something. What do you find right now as bringing an ROI? Is it cool hats? Is it social media advertising, billboards, you know, radio, television? Tell us what you've seen this proven to be the best ROI as far as marketing. Most of the stuff you just mentioned, the marketing, that is very important to get them there. Like, give me a chance at bat. Like, you're not making any money when I'm giving away hats that I paid money for. Same with billboards. They're not making me any money, but giving me the opportunity to talk to people and sell them the products that we offer. So to answer your question, whatever that is, like that's where you got to go to work. 
so we didn't have meetings or anything. We were just kind of real loose before. So I'm trying to get a little bit of structure at the store and start doing some monthly meetings with my guys and really trying to focus on what we need to do to better ourselves. And so my last meeting, I was talking about we need to appreciate that we work hard and we get people to the door, but they don't owe us a thing when they get there. They are not our customers unless they're repeat. But as soon as they get there, they're prospects. We haven't done anything for them. Just because they're there doesn't mean that they owe us their business. And so we got to earn that. So I think it's actually cool that you're saying, you know, the ROI comes from a multitude of things because you bought the business. You don't really see like what is the number one thing bringing business in, but also uh, and we'll just dive right into this. I think you're managing at least half a dozen people, but what to expect out of those employees? Because you just became their boss. So did you develop like an EOS? You say you're now going monthly meetings. How are you tracking that? What are you going over? Do you expect a certain amount of people to quit? Tell us that experience. So within the last year before I purchased the business, I kind of implemented the people I wanted, like they knew the people I brought in knew that, Hey, this is what I'm working on. And they knew they would be working for me one day. At least that's what we thought. So you saw that like way forecasted before you bought the business. Uh, yeah. About a year because Tom had told me for years, like, Hey, you can do this. I really think you should do this, you know, and kind of prep me for it. Um, so like those were some of my biggest fears were, what am I going to do with these guys that I don't want working for me? And what happened? Did those guys just naturally leave? One of them uh, had a substance abuse problem, came in one day, messed up. We asked him to go home and come back Monday and we'll talk and figure it out. Never came back. The other one just decided to, um, he just decided he wanted to do something else and started his own thing. So they naturally just took off. Yep. So, well, we know that these successes are what the business folk love to talk most about, right? But... There's probably more to learn in the failures. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So my failures haven't really come in business. My failures are what have gotten me to be able to purchase a business. Um, so back when I was in, you know, I really struggled remembering. I, I was like any other, well, maybe not any other. I was like the guy that was partying in high school. Didn't like school, didn't know that I had undiagnosed ADHD, just kind of out there trying to have fun and not harm people. But um, yeah, so I mean, before I was 18, I had gotten three drinking underage charges. And every time I just thought, man, I'm just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, like, why me? Why me? And I couldn't see the drinking or the using whatever was the problem. Fast forward a couple of years, it progressed to prescription drug use. And I don't really know how I got started doing that. You know, I've broken bones and stuff over the years, but nevertheless, I found myself taking them more often to the point where it's every day. Uh, I thought, you know, like, eh, this isn't a problem. I just don't want to quit. You know, like I just, and I'm actually performing better at first going to work, enjoying talking to people, being more outspoken, like, man, this is what I've been looking for, you know, and I started drinking less and there's a positive. I was like, hey, I was like, this is great. I figured it out. But then it got to the point where it's like, 
maybe I'll quit. And when I tried to quit and got extremely sick and couldn't, I got very fearful because I knew, oh no, like this is this is a lot bigger deal than I thought it was. How young are we talking? I was eighteen, yeah, seventeen, eighteen years old at this point. Uh, next thing you know, I had gone a couple days, and I, this was a secret to everybody, like my friends, my significant other, who's now my wife, my parents. You know, nobody knew I was doing this because I was ashamed. You know, it's like, but I still didn't think I was like a drug addict. And then one day I was trying to quit. It'd been a few days, and I thought, okay, I'm I'm gonna make this. And then every time I finally get like a text, hey, I got those. I'm on the way, you know, and I just couldn't say no. So I went and got some stuff, went into work, took what I thought was some prescription painkillers. And the next thing I know, I'm walking around and can't hardly feel my legs. And I look at Tom. I said, hey, man, I, I need to go. Like, I'm not feeling well. He's like, all right, you know, if you're sick. I'd just gotten there. But he's like, if you're sick, you know, whatever, go ahead. Next thing I know, I wake up two days later in the hospital. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. So what happened? Did you like pass out at work? So or? apparently I told him I was leaving. I went to my car, put my Powerade bottle on top of my car. I snuck back inside where nobody saw me and then went upstairs where we make area rugs. And one of the guys said, hey, where's where's Will? So oh, he left. He was sick. Like, no, he didn't. His car is still outside. And so Tom knew immediately that like something's not right. So they come upstairs and said, I'm just like, eyes rolling in my head, tripping or whatever, just like picking up carpet fibers, just, you know, I'm losing my mind up there. And so Tom's like, well, let's let's take him to the hospital. Then they said, I started trying to fight him. Did they know that you were on something Nobody. at this point? Nobody knew anything. Okay. They just thought, they had no idea what was going on. They're like, well, let's take him to the hospital. Then I started having a seizure. That's when shit gets real, real. Got real, real. Yep. Ambulance comes, picks me up. They put me in a drug-induced coma for, I guess, 24 hours or so. And then I wake up and my arms are tied to the hospital bed and I'm laying there. My parents are looking at me and my girlfriend at the time. I'm like, okay, what does everybody know? I, I, I had a memory in my head that I went home and went to sleep on the couch. That was, I guess, my plan. And that was the last thing my brain inputted. And so... They're like, well, do you remember what happened? I was like, yeah, I remember going home and going to sleep on the couch. They said, no, you didn't make it home. And I'm tied down. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? How'd you feel at that point? Well, I, I didn't know the gig was up. I'm still on the defense. I'm trying to protect the lie that I don't want to protect. You know, that's the crazy thing about addiction is like I want help, but I don't want help at the same time. It doesn't make sense. Like I'm shameful and I don't want to people to know that I'm struggling. So, yeah, so they they said, well, you didn't make it home. And they'd start telling me what happened, and I'm just like, oh, my God. And then they break the news. Hey, you've got a list, you know, from A to Z of drugs in your system. What's going on? And I saw that as my first opportunity to get honest and to ask for help. And so that's what I did. And um, my parents were nothing but supportive, I went into a um, in outpatient treatment facility where I would just go three hours a day for a couple of days a week, and then that's when like the next journey started, so to speak. Thanks for being willing to share that with us. Absolutely. Was this like the end of that? Did you kind of turn the corner from there, or what did that look like from there? 
No, it wasn't the end. It was the beginning to the end, but I still wasn't educated on addiction. I still thought, okay, I'm terrified. I almost died. I don't ever want to, at that moment, I was like, I don't ever want to take another anything, but I'm going to still smoke a little weed. I'm going to still drink. Everybody does that every day. No harm in that, right? Yeah, right. And so I did that for about a year and life seemed to be kind of still going. I was going to work. I was doing the things I needed to be doing, but still not progressing in life, right? Like I think a lot of people get stuck thinking like, oh, it's I'm not harming anybody, but my life was just stagnant. Uh, so then I had my wisdom teeth taken out. Uh-oh. Told them on the paperwork, hey, I have had past abuse problems, blah, 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 blah. I was very honest. And then they sent me home with a prescription and I took the first one. I'll, I'll never forget. I was on the way home and my mom, she didn't know any better. She's like, well, they said your pain's going to kick in, you know. And and at that point in my life, I didn't know that my body does not react the same as most people's to those medications. So I took one and I went from being about passed out to cleaning the damn basement. I was ready to go. I was down there sweeping and getting everything cleaned up. And it's like... I knew at that point that I just relit the fire. Not to say that medication is not medication when you need it, but like for me, I have to know, do I really need it or can I get by with Tylenol and Advil? That's what I've learned. So going back, that relit the fire. I got two more prescriptions out of my doctors because I, you know. Because you were on it. I was ready. You know what I mean? Like you're you're not stopping me. So back to trying to find ways and means to get more. And it was just like, it was terrible because I just knew that here we go again. I'm lying to myself, telling myself that it's not a problem. You know, you're just doing this, whatever. So that went on for another two years to the point where it progressed to where I started. The drugs stopped working and I needed to find new ways to make them work again. So I started using them in different ways. And that's when it really went to the next level. Now, I was still um, 20 to 22, you know, still very young. And my parents, God bless them, but they they just took care of me for way too long. And the best thing they ever did was give me an ultimatum. But I, I'm getting to that. But um, so, yeah, I start. I started using drugs intravenously, you know, with the needle. And I, at 18, I said I'd never do that because that's what drug addicts do. And that's, you know, this, that, or the other had all these beliefs. Like, that's not me. And that's where it took me very quickly. And once that happened, within six months, I quadrupled the amount that I was using. You can't afford that. That's not sustainable, you know? And I about near ruined every relationship in my life. I was still hiding it from everybody. My dad was finding out bits and pieces and was still just wanted to believe that, you know, his son's still in there. The guy that we talked about earlier, you know, that he knew he raised is still in there and give me opportunity after opportunity. And I just kept letting him down and I didn't know why. And I was like, I, I don't know what I can't stop. And I don't know how. And, uh, it took almost financially bankrupting my family before the gig was up again. How'd that come up? I was stealing money from my family 
and ironically enough, from Tom also. I only stole from Tom one time, and after I got clean, I actually went to him and told him, hey, man, I need to, this is about a year after I got clean, I said, hey, I need to do something to make this right. You know, whatever happens, happens. But I knew that the journey I began after I got clean, like, I don't really care what happens, who finds out what. I'm doing this for me now. It's a couple hundred bucks, not much, but I knew I had to do it to make my heart right. And so I told him, I said, hey, I'd like to pay you back. And so that's what I started doing. The second time I came in to pay him, this kind of man Tom is, the second time I came in to pay him, he goes, hey, I don't know if you noticed or not, but I gave you a $2 raise. What, what are you talking about? Like, I just told you that I'm stealing from you, you know? And he's like, yeah, but I can see where you're at now and I can see where you're going. And it takes a lot to come and tell somebody that. And I appreciate you. And you work hard and you're a great worker. And I'm like, thank you. Wow. That's the kind of man I worked for. So to go back to the finish of that, I could tell this story a long ways. It's it's a whole nother episode. But I literally took everything that I thought, all I could see was dollar signs in my parents' house. I took everything that I possibly could, pawned it, and I had this ingenious plan. I was going to sell it, buy some drugs, sell it, make some more money, use, blah, 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 you know, like this craziness, like you're just stuck in this wild craziness. And then it just all came crumbling down. Tell us how it came to an end. And then more importantly, how did you stop? Yeah. So it came to an end because dad finally pulled the plug and said, bullshit. This is all bullshit. Cause I said, I made up this plane. Somebody broke in, sold the shit. Da, da, da. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't me, you know, it was like, you got seven dogs and there's nobody got bit. There's no breaking in. No forced yeah, entry. Yeah, like the detective came to the house. I'm lying. I'm talking about, I'm incriminating myself here. <laughs> <laughs> my buddy who has no idea that I did it's there. And I'm like, yeah, my Xbox got stolen. And he's like, don't you mean your PlayStation? And I was like, no, my Xbox, I didn't have an Xbox. I was like trying so hard, man. And Thank God for my parents. They, they're great. My dad calls me up the next morning. He said, dude, this is bullshit. What the hell is going on? And see, my dad, the problem was he would always give me a story. He wouldn't let me tell him. He'd just fill me in. So he's like, did somebody you owe money to come in here? And I was like, yep. I already saw what was happening. The play was setting up for the next play. He's like, and you owe him money, and you're not getting that stuff back until you pay him. I was like, you called it. Sure. I then got more money from him to go buy the stuff back. And I had all the intentions to go get it. I went to the pawn shop. I said, hey, I need to get all that stuff back. I'm ready to. And they're like, hey, it's got to be in here for 24 hours before you can have it back because of they're trying to make sure it's not stolen. And I'm like, this ain't making it. This money in my hand is not making it 24 hours. It's just not happening. And so I spent all that money. And then two days later, was out of money again so i had to steal some more money and he found out and he calls me upstairs and he i don't know if you've seen the the movie uh flight uh with denzel washington and yeah. like dude addiction is like we're all the same we go until we just can't tell any more lies and just like in that movie he's sitting there all he had to do was tell one more lie and he'd have gotten scot-free and instead he swipes the couple bottles out well, of the mini yeah, bar that, yeah and then he goes to the thing and they're like he's just got to tell one more lie and he'll be scot-free and he just couldn't tell one more lie and that was the exact same for me my dad was like dude 
what is going on? Like, I'm not saying another word until you tell me exactly what's happening. And I just couldn't, I couldn't tell any more lies. I was ready. I wanted to be done. I just didn't know how to do it. And so I told him everything and he said, well, pack your shit. You're going to rehab or you're getting the fuck out, whatever you want to do. And so I went to rehab and that's where I learned about addiction and learned that it's a disease and that it's not the drugs. That's the problem. It's me. You know, I'm the one who wants to feel different in my own skin and that the drugs are just a symptom. I've got to fix this, not the drugs. The drugs are never going to work for me, you know? And so that's where I started my, I'll say spiritual journey. You know, I'm not a religious person, but definitely a spiritual person. Um, And that's where I started working on myself and started making changes. So rehab was a great start. It is not a cure. It was not a cure for me. I don't believe it's a cure for anybody. I think it's a start. And then uh, I go to 12-step meetings, and I still am active today in doing that type of thing. I help people. I have people that I sponsor and that I talk to and attempt to help get through life on life's terms. So what you're saying is the the 12 steps. I know you were making amends with Tom earlier. Um, you know, we all got shit to deal with. We're all kind of a little fucked up to be honest. So for those that, you know, maybe need help, you said like the 12 steps, um, actually go into a meeting is what saved you or is what continues to save you. Cause it's never, you know, fixed. It's just worked on. I noticed when I was young, something that helped me is I really found out what triggers were and it's so much easier to say yes if you're around a trigger. And it's easier to say no if you're not. So is the 12 steps, like, that's obviously one of the things that helped you. But is there any other takeaways there that anybody that might be struggling with anything? Yeah, I mean, it's a lifestyle change. Like, I had to get rid of the old playmates, you know, like, I don't associate with those people like using friends you know like they weren't friends they we used together but mostly yeah you know you have to change everything and i did and had to get to new friends i mean you're a totally different person um so i started hanging out with new people that had a different outlook on life and that's i mean that's everything that's what saved you is finding those new friends i I don't know because i'm a little older than you are but i see now that those people that you know, we called friends, you know where they're at now? They're dead and they're dying because they don't change that lifestyle. So, okay. We went down that personal road. Um, what do you got, Isaiah? What questions? Get us back on track here, homeboy. (laughs) So I think maybe a good way to wrap all that together. Is there any book that is significant to you? I mean, I know that the overall theme of the podcast, right, is about business and your experience, how it's correlated. But if you have a book, even from your experience with recovery that you'd like to touch on. Yep. So my memory is the one thing that was affected the most, I guess. I don't know. I I don't have a fantastic memory and I'm not a reader. I do listen though. So like I do the audio stuff. I just, I don't like to read. That's the same as reading, man. Everybody gives me a hard time, but Audible <laughs> yeah. is reading. Okay. Yeah. 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 So a couple books that were introduced to me was one was the Four Agreements, but it's kind of like a spiritual journey type deal, and it's really just four simple things to live by that you know just put the focus on you and 
if we could just get everybody focused on that and taking care of themselves, how much better the world would be and just how much better we will be with each other. There has to be something there with that book, because I think recommendation wise, away from just purely business, that's probably the most recommended book that I've had. Yeah. I mean, you want the secret to success, become a better person. If you want to make a ton of money, that's going to be a side effect. If you want to be a great podcaster, work on yourself. It doesn't matter. I think that is the key to it all. Like anything you want to do, work on being better. I strongly believe it. So second book is um, one that I'm currently listening to um, is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Classic. Uh, Yeah. You know, talks about being better with people. It's really relationships. And I'm enjoying it so far. I'm trying to get my guys to read it. I haven't made anything mandatory. I I coached Little League Baseball with a guy, and he's in a corporate job. I saw a book in his car. I was like, what's that? He's like, oh, work's making us read it. I said, do what? Like, that's so foreign to me. I was like, your (laughs) job is making you read a book? Like, I have little experience outside of what I've ever done. And so I'm like, man, I love hearing new ideas like that because – I feel like we can learn from it. So I've been trying to encourage my guys, attempting, I should say, not trying, attempting to get my guys to read it. And Yo, that's a takeaway. I know that we get a lot of good stuff out of encouraging our leadership team to do that too. Um, I do want to wrap up though, and the podcast is called Square One. So what I'd love to do is take you back to square one, not square one, like the personal journey that we talked about, because obviously what you would tell yourself is probably like, don't be doing that, but take yourself back to like the beginning of the purchase idea of Tom's Carpet. Not even the beginning of your career there, but when that light came to you that says, hey man, I'm going to purchase this damn thing, would you tell yourself anything different? Tough question. Um, No, I don't think so. I, I do describe it as this though. Before I had children, I could learn everything there is to learn about being a parent and having children and read and listen and do all this and talk to everybody and get all that experience. But until you do it, you have no idea what you're getting into. And there's good things and bad things that come from that. And that has been the exact same thing as buying this business. I didn't realize, like, I didn't think it would ever turn off, but like it really never turns off. You know, being the small business, you know, I'm not this big CEO that can hide behind a thousand employees and make decisions and then not come back to me. Whereas if I make a decision and implement something in a small business and people don't like it or whatever, if I piss somebody off, they come to me. My face is on the website. I'm in the store every day. They have my cell phone number. It's hard. You know, it's hard because you don't ever want to piss anybody off. But at the same time, you got to allow people to respect you, you know. So I think that's what I've been learning is like how to be an owner, how to not just be an employee, how to be a leader. I didn't know that was going to be such a big deal. I didn't know that managing the guys was going to be harder than just going and focusing on selling and making my money every day. But that's been the biggest thing is how do I manage people? I, I had no experience with that. So I would tell myself a lot of things, but the reality is I wouldn't have done any of them. 
<laughs> I wouldn't. I'd be like, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it. So the beautiful part about this podcast is it's so easy to talk about the beautiful things of entrepreneurialism, but there's not much out there that tells you the shitty part. And you just dropped a bomb on somebody that's hopefully listening to this because you don't check out at five, man. You don't stop. In fact, and somebody calls me and they're like, hey, you you working? I'm like, at this point, I'm kind of, I get chill. I got chill bumps thinking about it. I'm kind of disrespected <laughs> if you t- if you ask me if I'm working. I'm always working. Like, sure, I put the kids to bed at, let's say, 7.30, and I might, like, try to have a drink and stretch out or something, but it's always on, man, because you're responsible for half a dozen people. You're responsible for 30 people, 100 people, whatever the case is, or you're responsible for one. It's always on. Like, I wake up, you wake up, you're thinking about it, you go to sleep, you go for a run, you're working out a problem, so... I think that's a huge thing that we could put out there. Probably a great takeaway from this episode is be mentally prepared if you're going to take the journey that you don't clock out at all. Yep. Yeah. Will, thank you so much, man. Oh, thank you, guys. Yes, thank you. Will Jones with Tom's Carpet and Flooring Outlet. Go check him out. Thank you very much. See you later. Thank you for listening to Square One Podcast, a podcast brought to you by Omni Home Services, where we rep Chattanooga Home Inspector, Nuclear Pest Control, Elevate Home Staging and Design, and Radon Eraser. We release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.